morning, everyone. Let's get set up here. This morning, I want to talk to you about location because I believe location is something that matters very much to God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the heart of the message of all the scriptures is all about location, location, location. Location is important and you only have to ask anyone who's ever had trouble selling a house due to poor location, just how important location is. I don't think you'd find too many buyers interested in a property like that, even if the, the house in front of it was a multi-million dollar mansion, the location overrides everything. When Bruce and I were first married, uh, we lived in Eltham North, halfway between Eltham and Diamond Creek. And it was a basic three-bedroom house. It was a spec home, so it was built in what was then an outer suburb, and it was just a house plonked on land, and you had to do your own landscaping and, and everything. And Bruce did most of that himself, and he was forever on the roof, cleaning, guttering, meticulously maintaining the paintwork. We had the best paintwork in the street. Every weekend he was painting something. Um, and he built a garage because the house was basic. It didn't come with a garage. And in actual fact, the garage ended up probably being the best feature of that house because it was huge. It was bigger than any of our rooms. Um, and it had we put windows in, so there was lots of light and all this inbuilt shelving. And he did a great job. And, of course, I also went about doing the things that were important to me. So uh, I built a veggie patch and I built a massive chook pen. And I made some curtains, but we don't mention the curtains because my lack of crafting ability is quite legendary. And so the curtains were of the kind that had to be always kept open because if they were closed, there was a gap of about this much between one curtain and the other curtain. So the baby had to learn to sleep with the curtains open whenever we had visitors open, visitors over. Now, my point is we loved this house and we had many happy years in that house. But when it came time to selling, we discovered that others weren't quite as enamoured with the house as what we were. Now, the first issue was that the train line between Eltham and Diamond Creek ran along our back fence. And I mean literally along our back fence. Now this brings with it a number of complications. Firstly, there is the hordes of vandals that come to do their artist, artist, artistry on your back fence. Um, then there's the privacy issue. So the train line was built up about this high. So as we sat in our lounge room watching TV, people would wave at us as they went past in the train. And as I stood at the kitchen bench making dinner or washing dishes, people would wave at us. And whatever we were doing in the backyard, people would also wave at us, which was great when you had a two-year-old son who thought the trains were amazing. But for the rest of the time, the privacy issue was, was a bit of an issue for us. Now, we dealt with those two issues by um, 
planting a forest of trees along our back fence. And to this day, you can still pick our house because the forest of trees is still there. But there was another issue which was a little more difficult to deal with, and that was the regularity of life that comes with living on a train line. So you knew that at 6.45, the 6.45 <laughs> was going to come past, and then at 7.15, the 7.15 was going to go the other way. And for us, it, was, it just became normal to stop talking as the train went by because there was no point trying to fight it because you couldn't hear anything as the, as the train went by. So we would recognise when a train was coming, everyone who knew on the line knew it. You could hear it when it was about a couple of kilometres away. The tracks would start to vibrate and you could feel the vibration and then a horrible metal screeching noise as it got closer. <laughs> And then there was like a rushing wind and a vroom as it got up to your back door and then and during all of that, nobody could speak. Now, this wasn't the worst of it. We could put up with all that. Even lying in bed at night when the bed was shaking because the thing was going past, you got used to it. But we happened to live on a part of the track which was at the end of a bend. So the trains had to come around this bend and the bend happened to go through a cutting in sort of rock. And what that meant was that the train drivers were completely blind coming out of this corner. They couldn't see round it. Now, it just so happened that in their wisdom, the council workers had also decided to put in a sort of self-made crossing point for them to get all of their council trucks along the dirt and grass behind our back fence and over the track and into the parkland so they could maintain the parkland. And so they'd built up sort of using the stone base, a bit of a ramp either side of the track. And this became the unofficial crossing point for everybody that lived on our side of the track. So there were on weekends hordes of kids on bikes, mums trying to get prams over the, the tracks. And it wasn't long before the inevitable happened and there was a near miss and uh, the train driver, you know, had to have counselling and whatever, and it made the newspaper and everything. And we were worried that the, the, count, the train company were going to put in one of those ding, ding, ding things right outside our back door. Fortunately, they didn't. But what they did do was make an edict that every time a train came along there, when they got to our house, they had to go, <laughs> like this. So in the end, it became a little bit unbearable and uh, we decided that it was time to sell. No prizes for guessing, but this train track was uh, not a hot selling point for our house. Neither was the fact that we looked out of our kitchen window straight onto the major transmission lines, which fed that area. Neither was the fact that many more suburbs had gone out after us and the roads were just not able to cope. And so getting through Eltham in peak hour was walking speed only. So there really wasn't any doubt, we were in a bad location and while all the other properties in Eltham were going up in value, ours was kind of static or going down in value. And we had a terrible time trying to sell that house, nobody wanted it. And in the end we moved out and left it vacant. Eventually we did get rid of it, but for significantly less than what we wanted. But at that stage, we were just glad to not be covering two loans anymore because that was becoming unmanageable. 
And we learned a very valuable lesson from that house. That location matters. And it matters in real estate, but I believe location also matters very much to God. The passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, speaks of this location and uh, it's from the book of Exodus. Now, most of you, I'm sure, would be very familiar with the book of Exodus. It's prime teaching material for Sunday school stories and we all know the Sunday school stories. So there's a little baby who floats down a, a river in a basket. His name is Moses and the people are in slavery. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. Little baby grows up and he encounters God in a burning bush and there's an evil pharaoh who's holding the people captive. God sends quite a number of plagues upon Egypt. There's lots of appeals to pharaoh to let the people go. Eventually they are let go and God leads them on dry land through the the waters, parts the waters for them. They cross to the other side, they're on the move and then they start to grumble and they grumble more and they're hungry. So God provides for them and he provides food but he also provides laws for them to live by and the people respond to this gracious provision almost immediately by breaking those laws. And most of the rest of Exodus, which is about 13 chapters in, in two chunks, um, is taken up with descriptions for the construction and the use of the tabernacle. And it makes for some pretty tedious reading for those of you who have ever tried to read it. But it's this part that I want to have a look at today. It's this part of Exodus that most people skip over because they think it's just outdated instructions for a bygone people. But if you're prepared to dig a little bit into those chapters, you will uncover a priceless treasure and I think it'll change your perspective on the whole book of Exodus. Um, since studying it in earnest a few years ago, Exodus has become far and away my favourite book in the Bible and I've found that it is so much more than just ancient biblical history. I now firmly believe that if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, start in Exodus. If you want to know who God is and how he deals with his people, it's all laid out for you in Exodus. Jesus and so many of the New Testament writers frequently refer to teachings from Exodus. So if you want to understand the New Testament, first get a good grip on what's in the book of Exodus. So this morning... I've picked out a little gem for you. It's Exodus 33, verses 1 to 17. But we're going to get to them a little bit later because first I want to deal with some context because context is very important here. We're going to cover 16 chapters in all today. I know it's very ambitious, but I promise you, I'm sure Imjai and Vivian say this all the time, it won't hurt at all. So chapters 32... 33, where we're going to read from today, and 34 from the book of Exodus, a sandwich between these 13 chapters in two parts, which deal with the construction and use of the tabernacle, which is that tent that they had in the desert that they took around with them, portable temple. 
Now, much of this is instructional reading, and it reads something like this. So I've just picked out one paragraph as an example. Make an ulcer of acacia wood for burning incense. It's to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high. It's horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides of the horns with pure gold and make a gold moulding all around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the moulding, two on each side of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. And on and on and on it goes with descriptions for poles, for canopies, for a basin, for clothing, for utensils, recipes for fragrant oil and incense, descriptions of the courtyard, curtains, the lamps, the priest's clothing, and countless other things. To be honest, it doesn't make for the most exciting reading. And I confess to having dismissed all of these chapters as little more than outdated instructions for a bygone people and skipped over them many, many times in my reading of Exodus. However, can you think of anything else in the Bible that is given 13 chapters? The birth of Jesus, pretty important. It only gets three or four chapters across a couple of Gospels. The whole creation story, pretty important two chapters in Genesis and here we have something given 13 chapters in the book of Exodus. It must have been included for a reason and so for me a more careful reading of these chapters is in order. So when we have a, a look, a bit of a closer dig um, into these chapters, the first thing that will hit you is the extravagance that's there. So a tonne of gold was used in this tabernacle. And I've set up here the approximate current value is, in today's terms, $33 million. Apparently my husband Googled it during the last service and tells me, no, it's 90-something million dollars in today's value. Good to have a husband always checking up on you. Um, three and a half tonnes of silver, current value $1.75 million. Two and a half tonnes of bronze, approximate current value 15,500. Whatever way you look at it, whatever the numbers are, that is a huge amount of metal that they're carting around with them um, in the desert and a huge value that they're carting around with them. On top of that, there's all this acacia wood, purple and scarlet yarn, spices, craftsmanship, embroidery, artistry, weaving, engraving. This thing is extravagant. Um, and it's got some serious wow factor. We're not talking a simple canvas tent in the desert. The second thing um, that will hit you when you start to carefully read these chapters is the intricate detail that is provided for each of the things. God doesn't just say, make a lampstand and leave it up to their imagination how to make a lampstand. He provides every last detail of that lampstand. So the lampstand and its base and its shaft, as well as the flower cups and buds and petals, must be hammered out of one piece of gold. Six branches that have come out of the sides, three on one side, three on the other. Each of the six branches is to have three flower cups, and they're all to be shaped like almond blossoms with buds and petals. There's no two ways about it. It's, it's all spelled out there exactly how they have to build this lampstand. And it's the same for most of the things that are described. So there's another example there with Aaron's robe. It doesn't just say make him a robe. 
to wear in his priestly duties? Make it entirely out of violet material. Make an opening for the head. Reinforce the edge of the opening with a leather collar to keep it from tearing. Around the hem of the robe, put pomegranates of violet, purple and bright red yarn with gold bells in between. A gold bell alternating with a pomegranate all the way around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear this when he serves as a priest. Nothing's left to the imagination. The third thing that you'll notice when you start reading these chapters is that a single word jumps out. Now, when I'm reading through the Bible year by year, I like to sort of set myself a different task or challenge each year. So um, one particular year I went looking for a set of words, the Lord said or God said, right through the Old Testament. Now, if you go and do that, that's, it's quite an interesting exercise to figure out exactly what God did say. So you'll see some marks here in this scan from my Bible of where the Lord said things. And he says quite a few of them in, in this particular passage that we're looking at. But the other thing that is interesting to do is an interesting exercise when you're reading a passage. If there's a particular word that's repeated, just mark it. And you'll see how important that word becomes. And in this case, the word holy is used over and over and over again. It's not just like two or three uses. It's like a machine gun approach right through these passages. So you'll see, my glory will make this place holy, the altar for their holy purposes, their holy duties, most holy to the Lord, the holy place, holy oil, holy oil again. It will be most holy, the holy purpose. Uh, the holy duties, the holy oil, it's now holy and you must treat it as holy, pure and holy, most holy. Treat it as holy to the Lord and on and on it goes. doesn't take you long to get a very clear idea that this word holy is there for a reason. So the question is why? Why all of this extravagance? Why all of this intricate detail? And what's the importance of this word holy? You know, our building was put up here 50 years ago by our foundation members and no doubt they followed some sort of plan. Although, uh, having gotten married in this church when the paintwork was all mission brown and the carpet was orange, prickly, sort of wiry carpet tiles and the seats were yellow plastic bucket seats, um, I would like to know exactly who specified that and the yellow bottle glass windows in the plan. But no doubt in 50 years from now, that generation will be looking at what we build and say, who did that? But having sat as a member of the building committee, I can assure you that our plan is nowhere near as detailed as what God gives here in his instructions for the tabernacle. And so the obvious question is why? And God answers that question himself plainly and directly several times. You'll see it up here. The answer is, so that I may dwell in their midst. The location that God wanted was to be in the midst of his people. I will dwell in their midst. I will dwell among the people that I might dwell among them. God was giving them the instructions for his own dwelling place. It was a tent that was to be made holy and set apart when he himself would make himself present in that place. 
Our church building here, or any other church building for that matter, is not where God lives anymore. But we must consider the implications of these passages in terms of where God chooses to dwell today within us and what implications these passages might have uh, for ourselves. So looking back, we see that location has always been very important to God. Looking back, God has always longed to dwell with his people. Was that not his original intention in the Garden of Eden? Indeed, there are many parallels between the Genesis description of the garden and the description of the tabernacle provided here that serve to remind us of God's perfect plan to dwell with his people. So for nerds like me who are interested, I've put some of the parallels up here. If you want a full list, uh, these authors here, Andrew Sack and Richard Aldrich, have got a great book on reading the Old Testament for understanding. Uh, and they give a more complete list. I've just picked four out of their list. But if you have a look, the Garden of Eden had the Tree of Life in the middle. And we have the location and the central, the central location and the design of the lampstand in the tabernacle. In Genesis, God makes the world in six days and he does so by speaking. And he rests on the seventh day. In the description of the tabernacle, God says things seven times. And the seventh time, what he says concerns the Sabbath. Uh, in the garden, the cherubim guard the entrance to the garden. In the tabernacle, the curtain that screens off the most holy place has an angel design built into it and described by the Lord. In the creation account, God finished his creation and saw that it was good and he blessed the work. When we get to the end of these passages and the tabernacle is finally constructed, and the work is finished, Moses saw that the people had followed the Lord's instruction and he blessed them. So it's little wonder that when Moses was about to make the tent, God warned him to be sure to make everything based on the plan that I have shown you. This plan, however was not based on the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was not a copy of the Garden of Eden. It had a much grander design. And if we have a look in the book of Hebrews, we can see where that design comes from. So talking of um, Christ, book of Hebrews tells us that he serves as priest of the holy place and of the true tent set up by the Lord, not by any human. The other priests, they serve at a place that is but a pattern, a shadow of what is in heaven. And so we see that the tabernacle is a copy or a precursor of the heavenly throne room. That is what this is all based upon. And so, of course, God is keen that Moses make it exactly according to the plan that he has shown him. Now, the book of Numbers, chapter 2, gives us a glimpse 
of what God meant when he said he would dwell in their midst. This chapter in the book of Numbers details God's instructions for locating the family groups around that tabernacle. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, They will put their tents around the tent of meeting, facing it. And so here we see that when God said that he would be located right in their midst, he would dwell in their midst, he actually meant it literally. He would be there right in the centre, the focal point of their day-to-day life in the desert. So here's the, the tabernacle and these are all the different tribes of Israel. And there were instructions as to how they were to place themselves with that tabernacle right in the centre. So this is an artist's impression of what that might have looked like. Now, we are told that there were 603, 550,000 troops in the Israelite camp. So adding women and children to that number would take it well over a million people. So imagine packing that lot up every time they had to move on, as well as all the tonnage that was associated with that tabernacle. Where is God? Well, location's important to him. He wants to be front and centre, the focal point of each family's life. So he was right there in the middle and that was what he desired for his people. Now, this is all very lovely. The trouble is it's not what eventuated, at least not initially. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the people's sin gets in the way and separates them from God. And so there are a couple of really ugly chapters to get through before we get to the happy ending in the story. So Moses, he's been up the mountain in God's presence for 40 days. There he has received detailed instructions about the construction and use of this tabernacle and he's also received God's law, which he has inscribed for him on stone tablets. Meanwhile, the Israelites are getting impatient. Where's Moses? Why is he taking so long? What's he doing up there? Perhaps they're wondering whether he got lost in the cloud that had descended on the mountain. Maybe he'd been consumed by fire. Perhaps he'd gone back to Egypt and forgotten about them. Or maybe he was just going to stay on the mountain with God forever. Wherever he was, he wasn't with them, nor was there any tangible sign of God's presence, since it was now hovering over this mountain that they were all too afraid to approach. They were likely anxious to get moving and probably reluctant to do so without some tangible sign of God's presence going with them. So they approach Aaron and they ask for him to make an image, a golden calf representing a divine being that could go before them in lieu of this cloud that was now over here and stuck over the mountain for 40 days. Meanwhile, Moses is moseying on down the mountain. He's looking radiant. He's been in God's presence for 40 days. He's probably feeling like he's walking on air. And then God speaks again. And this time his tone has changed. Previously it's always been, let my people go. My people this, I will dwell among my people. Now God speaks and it's your people. So he says to Moses, go back down there. Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have ruined everything. They've already turned from the way I commanded them to live. and They've made a statue 
of a calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it. And they've said, Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. All throughout the first part of Exodus, God has always spoken of them as his people. And now there's a distance between them and him. And he refers to them as your people whom you brought out. And so as Moses approaches the camp, he hears the sound of a wild ruckus. There's a party going on down there and he sees the golden calf that they've created in his absence. And in a burst of anger, he takes those stones with the law on them and he smashes them at the foot of the mountain. Talk about peaks and troughs. He's just been in the presence of God for 40 days. He knows exactly what it is that God intends for his people. And then down the mountain he comes and finds everything ruined. And so we come to the meat in the sandwich today, which is this morning's reading from Exodus 33, uh, verses 1 to 17, for those that want to follow on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people and I will not go with you, not even for a moment. I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people rose and stood at the entrance to their own tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and all your people from the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. So just by way of reminder, here's our artist's impression of the location that God wanted to be front and centre, to be focal, 
the focal point of the people's lives, dwelling right in their midst. And this, sadly, is what the people's sin did. It separated them from God. God announces that he will not be with them because they are impossible to deal with and he might destroy them on the way. And so instead of travelling with them personally, he now announces that he'll send an angel to go before them. The tabernacle was supposed to be location, 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 God right in their midst. It was supposed to be extravagant, full of intricate detail and made holy by God's presence. But holiness and perfection can't dwell with sinfulness. So Moses is forced to seek an alternative. And he calls this alternative the tent of meeting. But sadly, not only is this tent, this place of meeting with God, not in their midst, it's not even located in their camp. In fact, we're told it was set up far outside the camp. And things are now just not the same as people look on from a distance while Moses visits the tent and speaks with God. Indeed, Moses and his assistant Joshua seem to be the only ones enjoying the fullness of relationship that God had intended. Everyone else is on the outside looking in, or in this case, they're literally on the inside looking wistfully out. In my mind, next to the Messiah crucified, this would have to be the most tragic image in the Bible. God came near and they pushed him out. Today, God still longs to have that prime position in our lives, to dwell in our midst, yet how often do we push him out and keep him at a distance and opt for some kind of halfway relationship with him? A little bit of God on the side when we perceive we need him, over the fullness of his indwelling presence with us and how it must sadden God who has gone to such great lengths time and time again even to death on the cross to dwell in our midst only to be cast out like this. Now the passage also tells us that when Moses went into this tent of meeting a column of smoke would come down and stand at the entrance to the tent and that the Lord would speak to Moses personally as a man speaks with a friend face to face. Now often when we read Old Testament stories, there's a strong temptation for us to want to see ourselves as the primary character in the story. We all want to be the Moses or the Joshua, maybe the Jonah. Um, generally, we're not. Generally, we're more like the Israelites. Uh, and we're often sort of stuck at a distance in our relationship with God, knowing that something is just not quite right. Have you ever stood in worship and looked on longingly as others are deep in adoration of God? Have you ever been humbled by the intimacy that others seem to have in prayer? Have you ever seen someone radiant as they serve God in the lowliest of tasks? Or have you ever watched someone giving well beyond their means and doing it with genuine joy because their faith is big enough to trust God for their own needs? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then you'll know what it feels like to yearn for greater intimacy with God. As a result of Moses' intercession 
on behalf of the Israelites, they got to share the favour that Moses enjoyed with the Father. And because of Jesus, we also get to share the favour that Jesus enjoys with the Father. God has always longed to be located right in the midst of his people. It's the location he desires and he deserves nothing less. Through Christ, God dwells in our midst today, not in some tent in the desert, not in our church buildings, not even in our Bible colleges. God dwells in us. He is as much in our midst as each one of us will allow him to be. Now, God responds to Moses' intercession with compassion and mercy. In verse 14, he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you peace. The Lord again meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. Again, he makes his promise with Israel. And again, he puts his commandments on stone tablets. Again, Moses Moses comes moseying on down the mountain. Again, a sight to behold, face radiant and shining. But this time, the people respond appropriately with reverent fear. And the work of the tabernacle is finally back on track. Now we can think of this golden calf incident and the passage that we read today as the meat in a sandwich of text. Or for me, the cheese in the sandwich if you're vegetarian. So there's a block of text here and a block of text here. These are our 13 chapters that I talked about, the descriptive chapters about the tabernacle and its use. And if we repeat the process that we did with this block down here, you see again the same level of extravagance in the description. You see again all that same intricate detail. But this time, instead of this word holy, you'll be struck by this little phrase here, following the Lord's instructions. So over and over again in that second block of chapters, it'll say something like, and the Israelites built the such and such following the Lord's instructions. Again and again and again. So at least for now, things are truly back on track. God's instructions are carried out and the tabernacle is built. In spite of everything that they have done, God's plan prevails and he does dwell right in their midst. Location matters and it matters a lot to God. It always has. Not that where you live is at all important, but where God lives is paramount. God longs to be front and centre in our lives, to dwell in our midst and to be the focal point around which all else in our lives moves. This is the kind of life that he designed for us and it's what he has always wanted for his people. Not to be stuck far outside the Israelite camp or cast out somewhere on the edge of your life like some kind of optional extra, there when it suits you and ignored the rest of the time. So the obvious question today is where is God in your life? Is he front and centre? Does he dwell in your midst as he has always longed to do? Is he the focal point of your life? Does everything else revolve around him? And if you answer yes, could you actually prove that if you had to? Or 
do you deliberately keep him off at a distance? Somewhere off to the side when you can pull him out when you need him and tuck him away when you're busy or when your faith becomes inconvenient? Are you stuck looking wistfully on at others, longing for greater intimacy with God? Or are you enjoying today the fullness of that relationship in the here and now? Jesus says to all who believe, I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. God desires to be united with you and with me, not just in heaven. Eventually in heaven he'll get exactly what he wants. He will be front and centre then, but he desires it right now. It's what he's always wanted. Genesis, right through to Revelation, the message doesn't change. So let's not settle for a halfway relationship with God. We need to allow his spirit to permeate our lives as individuals and we need to become a community for which it can truly be said, God dwells in their midst. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Let's stand as we see our closing song.
Father God, we say, have your way. Have your way in us. Lord, we know. We know exactly what you want. We know exactly the location that you want for our lives. And Lord, we confess when we have, like the Israelites, put you off somewhere on the side. Lord, we know that you long to dwell front and centre and be that focal point in our lives. And so we say, Lord, have your way in us.